Hello and welcome to this week's Bone Ditch by Ian Bird. Um, I'm Ian Bird and this is Bone Ditch. And if you want to read more about it, please visit our website, which is www.bonditch.wordpress.com. Right, so the last excerpt was the final part of chapter two, which means this time it's the first part of chapter three. Chapter three is called Miss Taken, and the first part, Gobbit 7, is Her Fingers Where You Sleep. Elliot sifted the grave dirt through her fingers while Gavin filled in the ditch. They'd both slept all day and were only now getting around to covering up the scene of the crime of the night before. Gavin snorted. I feel like I just dug this ditch. It would have been nice to have had Harriet help me fill it in. Planting that creepy sod in the cemetery was her idea. Well, said Elliot, you were the one to give her an impromptu therapy session and send her on to live a happier life away from bones and ditches and the things that creep around them. Anyway, what's my creepy friend going to tell me about Kataki Alauzon and your friend? He stopped digging. My friend's name was Catherine Eliopoulos, and it was all a very long time ago. It was a strange coincidence. Every single one of Catherine Eliopoulos's boyfriends for the last 15 years had suffered such intense hay fever that they had never been able to come with her to visit her mother's garden. Catherine sat on the bench, the only bench in the garden, next to her mother. The older woman was as silent as ever, sitting small and still as if she could be forgotten. In this place, that was unlikely. She had created this place. This piece of ground had been a wasteland two decades before. People had dumped refuse and buried filth here, and even the legitimate owners had stalked by it, cursing the day they had laid down green for something that would always be grey. But Catherine's mother had seen what lurked pregnant in the filthy ground and nurtured that nascent seed to life in this otherwise perfect world. Now the small allotment seethed with life so potent that it seemed almost angry. Flowers poured from the earth, dripping from the vines, bursting from the dirt, hanging like convicts from bowers and trees. And the bees, they swam in the thick sweet air like clouds, crawling over you on their way to the hive when too waylaid with pollen to fly, their hairy thick legs tripping over your skin like a caress. Their humming was a frequency you couldn't tune out. Even when you left the garden you heard their song, directions apparently, instructions, how to live a better life. But that was the lessons Catherine's mother had already taught her daughter. I'm only going for a week, but it'll be two weekends, so I won't be back to visit till the end of May, Catherine said. Her mother slowly turned her head to face her daughter. Her eyes were slow and milky. A bee walked across the older woman's forehead. I know, and I'm sorry, said Catherine, but I'll be back before you know it. It's Gavin. You know what he's like. He wants to spirit me away from all of this. The garden was paradise, and that was obvious. A half-wit would feel bound to point out that the kind of man who wanted to help you escape from paradise was possibly not to be trusted. That kind of man usually came bearing apples and a forked tongue. It's work I need a break from, Mother, you know that. Danton's being a is being impossible. A few days out of the office will make all the difference. The bee lifted from the old woman's face and landed on Catherine's naked forearm. This happened a lot. It could feel like a blessing. It could feel like a prelude to injury. But it's the money from the job that pays for me to keep paying for this, Mother, and you know it. I could quit tomorrow, but then we'd be living in a different world, wouldn't we? The bees hung in the air like promises, never quite landing, never quite going where you wanted. The air was so sweet you had to gulp it in, even as it clung to the back of your throat like someone dragging you underwater for the last time. She had been here before. She insisted on having sex with Gavin before they'd even unpacked their bags. 
The cottage was cramped and the air was close, but he was closer and the prospect of the week to come was closer still. She bit him, she clawed him, she left marks and made him wince. She crawled inside him, she detonated inside him, she flexed muscles up her back and down her legs that crushed him. He laughed all the while, there was perfect blood on the white wet of his teeth. His veins bulged, she gasped when she slid off him. This was a good idea, Catherine said. He was always dazed after sex. She was always seething. A good seething. A what next seething. She was good at ideas, but not always good at good ideas. Gavin was good at good ideas. This holiday had been his idea. Their going out together had been his idea. She could see that he wanted to get some sleep. Outside the window, the day was turning to dusk. There was blood swimming in the blue sky, a crimson stain at the corner of the sky's lips. Catherine felt a fierce, energetic joy in her bones. No, 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 she suggested, by way of demanding. Let's explore. Catherine had never visited Iceland before. Gavin had been several times. An old university friend of his had been from these parts, and the two of them had spent a couple of summers at his home, two or three hours' drive south of Reykjavik. It was his kind of place, the ends of the earth. The island was called Hofokupu. It was minute, barely inhabited, and breathtaking in every direction. Nine miles off the southern coast of Iceland, it tilted out of the water as if to get a better look at the mainland and the neighbouring island of Hymay. It cast its beautiful shadow out over the cold blue sea. In 1973, said Gavin, as they walked through the twilight towards a bar that he promised he knew, after 5,000 years of peace and quiet, the earth split open and a forgotten volcano suddenly erupted on Hymay. For a week... Lava boiled out of the fissure and poured down towards the town and its harbour, totally unstoppable. The town wasn't a big place, but it was still home to thousands of people. For six months, they pumped seawater onto the river of lava until it finally cooled enough to solidify and the damage was finally stopped. But by then, 400 homes had been swallowed up by the tide. They called it the Pompeii of the North. My God, did anyone die? Gavin shrugged. You know, I'm not sure... He liked stories like that, brutal and short. The air on the island was still a little sulphurous, rotten but bracing, like being beaten with a femur. But the atmosphere? It was as if the atoms in the air had been shattered apart and were now hanging in a beautiful vacuum, suspended in cold, light space. She felt high and gliding, even as she felt as if she were skimming just above the sea. There was a ringing clarity hanging in the evening air, like a gallows scrubbed clean with salt. Gavin said that about 500 people lived on the island. It had become a tourist venue over the last five years, and a lot of the people who lived here now worked on scuba diving and whale watching and boating businesses out of the tiny harbour. Or they ran abseiling, hand gliding, spelunking activity centres further inland. The rest of the population were fishermen or farmers or publicans. There were a few beds available at each of the island's five pubs. The rest were rented cottages like the one Gavin had hired. At any given point, Gavin said, visitors could outnumber the islanders five to one. Yeah, but think about that, Gavin had said as Catherine had nodded along absent-mindedly. Those visitors aren't all going to be Icelanders, are they? They're going to be from the States, Europe. They're going to be from all over. That means, proportionately, inch for inch, this island's population is going to be made up from more places than most places on Earth. And it's tiny, deserted. It's a scrap of nowhere, miles from anything. And its population is, who knows, anyone on Earth. I think that's lovely. You're overrating the appeal of this place to people from Africa and my neck of the woods, I think. She nudged him hard in the ribs. This is the whitest place I've been in my life, but thanks for bringing me here, she said, sliding her arm through his. It's gorgeous. I thought you could use a break, Gavin said. I know your work has been impossible. Not impossible. I know I can do it. 
It's just him. I just can't make him happy. But you do know that at least some of your job is making him happy. Don't be a dick, she said. They reached the inn. It was low, battered together out of cobblestones, dragged here and there to make a kind of drunken bothy. The roof was layered with turf and smoke poured from the chimney. The smoke smelled better than most things she could imagine. Wood, peat, it was sweet and it was old. A shingle hung from a post just outside the front door. It said that the place was called Drotning. What does that mean, Drotning? It means the Queen, Gavin said. Catherine smiled and walked up and pushed on the front door. It was locked. She scowled and turned back to Gavin. It's closed? Honey, it's three in the morning. Catherine looked around her. That silent, empty air. That giddy feeling in her skull as if it was full of a cloud of bees. That lonely ache in her bones. Of course, only now she recognised it. She was exhausted. It was the middle of the night. She was sun drunk. You said you wanted to explore, Gavin said. I didn't want to get in your way. She walked back and sat down on the grass. It was cool, but not damp. The ground, the air, the sky, it all felt the same, out of time and out of scale. She had never felt anything like it before. Besides, I brought her something along to drink. Gavin pulled a small bottle of vodka out of his jacket pocket and sat down next to her. She took a swig. You're good, you know? I'll blush. I mean it, she said. Not everyone's nice. He didn't like to respond to that. He took niceness for granted. Too many good things had happened to him. So, who's the Queen? asked Catherine. You are. You're the Queen, she laughed. No, seriously, the pub, Drotning. Who's the Drotning? It's an old story, Gavin said. This place used to be a, what's the word, kingdom, sort of, but smaller. Dukedom? Is that a word? Fiefdom, suggested Catherine. That's it. The guy, the laird or whoever, the thief, had a wife and a younger brother, but no children. And so the Duke guy, he knew that if he died before he had a son, then the island would go to his younger brother. And that wouldn't have worked. The younger brother was one of those youngest kids' kids, you know. It wasn't enough that he won, everyone else had to lose. The laird knew that if his brother took his castle, his mighty castle, then the brother would take the island next, and then the island would fall. His wife finally got pregnant, but the baby was a girl. What a bitch, said Catherine. Quite. So that was no good. And then suddenly the laird died, and the island went to the younger brother after all, who immediately evicted the widow and the baby girl out of the castle and into the wilderness. He took the castle for himself, and, as the dead duke had predicted, the island fell into rack and ruin. Catherine swigged more vodka. There weren't even any insects in the sky. The air was completely still, except for her and Gavin. This would be what the world would be like after the apocalypse, she thought, everything just quietly running out. And no one knew what had happened to the widow and the daughter, continued Gavin. They just disappeared. Some people said that the younger brother had killed them off. Other people said that they had died of grief. There weren't any birds. There weren't any aeroplanes. Catherine had met Gavin at a party in a nightclub three years before. He had been drunk, but funny. Then, halfway through the night, he had suffered a nosebleed, and they had left the club while he had start, tried to stop the bleeding. Neither of them had had any tissues. He had been forced to resort to pinching his nose while sitting on the curb. In the yellow streetlights outside the club, his face had been quite pale, the only colour that horrible red detonation. She hadn't left him there, though. She had chatted with him while the bleeding slowly stopped, laughing in spite of herself every time someone walked past him to ask if he had any cocaine. He hadn't known why they kept asking him that, and she had found that funny too. Gavin, meanwhile, was still talking. Then it turned out, years later, that the daughter was still alive, that she was living in the cemetery with the gravedigger. She was living with this man out on the far edge of the island in a tiny croft with the man who buried them all. 
But that wasn't the whole story. It turned out that she was the one carving everyone's gravestones. Everyone's. Everyone died, of course, and then when they died, she would be the one to find a piece of stone, cut it into shape, and then carve their name and their dates onto it. She'd been doing the job for years. Everyone on the island who had died in that time had passed by her hands and been sent on their way, directed by her work. Well, that seemed fair enough to start with. Everyone needed a job, after all. But across the island, that thought slowly took root. Everyone died. And as everyone died, she was the one to find a stone. She was the one to cut into shape, carve their name and dates on it, and then set it above them for the rest of time. They looked at these stones, all of them, and while each one was different, each was still clearly the work of the same pair of hands, the same intention. Some stones were engraved with runes, others with strange and delicate pictures. Some had poetry carved across them, and some seemed actually to be growing out of the ground, cascading for the heavens, flowing like molten rock. Some, belonging to those less popular or more disreputable on the island, even had misspellings, as if the corpse in question was heading to an afterlife where nothing would be waiting for them. And once that thought, that recognition took root, it was only a matter of time before people started to think that this baby daughter, now a grown woman, was actually the queen after all. She stood above each of the people on the island after all, and sent them on their way when they were at their most vulnerable. Their mothers saw them into the world, but she saw them out of it. Her uncle, the prince, the laird, the chieftain, whoever, he didn't like that at all. He had worked hard to eradicate all memory of his late brother and his family, and he wasn't going to let some grave rat steal away his power with some morbid fantasy. So one night, this uncle took the six finest killers and maniacs from his personal guard and led them to the graveyard to confront his niece and her husband. But no one ever saw the prince, the duke, or his guardsmen ever again. No one was fool enough to grieve for them, but that morning those who could be bothered went out looking and found nothing except for seven new gravestones in the cemetery, each one a beautiful and perfect memorial to a dead soul. And no one ever saw the daughter again either. But of course, there was no doubt anywhere on the island that she was their queen from then on. Catherine was quiet as Gavin's words drifted off into the strange night that never came. There isn't a castle on the island, she said at last. Well, said Gavin, people kept on dying, didn't they? No one ever saw her again, but people still needed their tombstones. Now that the castle was empty, she could use that for raw materials. The castle was built with the very finest stone on the island after all. Over the years, over the decades, the castle got smaller and smaller, until one morning it was gone. They both dozed off, falling asleep under the never-setting sun. Catherine woke before Gavin. Her body ached, but it was a nice ache. She checked his watch, without waking him. It was just after six in the morning. She stretched and walked back to a crossroads they had passed on the way to the pub. Sure enough, there was a signpost there, standing like a gallows. One arrow pointed the way to the gruff. Catherine was hardly a linguist, but she guessed that meant grave. Just a mile and a half over the hill. It took her about 25 minutes to reach the cemetery. Gavin's silly story had apparently been set in a time of dragons and vikings and fairy mist, but the cemetery these days was neat and civilised. Normal people died here. Gravestones looked the same as they would anywhere else in the world, neat, quiet mini-monoliths bearing their restrained, respectable names and dates. The population on the island had never grown particularly, so there had never been a terrific demand for burial space, but you should be surprised how relentlessly the dead can pile up, even here at the ends of the earth. 
Catherine walked deeper into the graveyard, and the tombstones slowly became less regular, less uniform, more old. Here was the war. Here was the turn of the century. The dates on the stones stretched back further and further, the names becoming harder and harder to discern. Here was Icelandic home rule. Here was the Muhajidin. Here was the Vistaband. Here was the age of the Sturlungs. Motionless, the tombstones swarmed about her. Beneath each one rested a corpse, a nest of bones that had died alone but been fucked into existence. Each one was unique, but each also seemed alien in the same way. The stone felt different to her now, darker, more brittle. Igneous rock, she supposed, less familiar to her, but there was something else. Could the same hands have carved each one of these? Their mothers saw them into the world, but the queen saw each of them out of it. As each of the bodies lay down for the last time, she had been the one to tuck them into their last beds. Her fingers where you sleep. The headstone suddenly before her looked impossibly ancient, but had somehow ambushed her. The curls and walls of the stone formed a name and a date, and the tracing of what looked like a skull. The deliberate design was obvious, but age made it appear natural, as if eroded into life instead of created. The skull's eyes met Catherine's, and both smiled at the other in recognition. The name on the headstone read Kataki Eleison. Catherine wanted to see Gavin again, so she started back the way she had come. The light was the same as it had been at one in the morning, and at three in the morning, but as she walked back towards the pub she felt everything become lighter. She would carry a small piece of this place along with her for the ride. Catherine turned back before she left the graveyard and watched another figure walk alone across the cemetery. At first she thought it could be Gavin, but the figure was too short and too thin. It stopped and turned to look at her. The skeletal figure raised her hand in a wave or to beckon, but Catherine hurried on her way. Back at the pub, fifteen minutes walk later, Gavin was still asleep. She crouched down next to him and stroked his face, her fingers where he slept. To be continued. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed that. Like I say, if you'd like to know more, please do visit our website, which is www.bonditch.wordpress.com. And meanwhile, I'll see you again, hopefully, in another week. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Be seeing you.